my name is Nick Fletcher, and this is the late summer 2023 installment of Interview with the PD Pod. Uh, I have a guest today who really probably needs no introduction at all, but is a friend of mine, and I think somebody who is a mentor to many, including myself, and somebody who we all look up to. Woody Sankar is a professor of pediatric orthopedics up at Children's uh, Hospital of Philadelphia, where he serves as the Young Adult Hip Preservation Program Director and heads up the Hip Disorders Program as well. He is internationally known for his work in the hip as a member of IHDI and a number of other hip study groups like Anchor. Um, he also actually is a pretty active spine surgeon. He's had tremendous roles within the Department of Orthopedics at CHOP and uh, also has uh, numerous roles within POSNA including acting as our secretary currently. Um, I've known Woody for a long time. We are relatively close in training, and I think that he is somebody who is always thought of as incredibly thoughtful, insightful, uh, somebody who can take projects across the finish line as, as a real finisher. Um, I think that he is somebody who, you know, now basically a generation of students, residents, and fellows look to for recommendations and thoughts and somebody who I think all of us enjoy seeing at meetings. So this is a great discussion. I think that we talked a lot about his background and sort of his journey, but also at the end, given his role within PASNA and his familiarity with some of the aspects of PASNA, such as running an annual meeting and leadership on the board, we had him discuss some of the nuances that make our organization so great and how different membership uh, roles come up and, and whatnot. And I think that will hopefully be very insightful to people. So Thank you to all listeners, as always, for your support. Thanks to Carter Clement for help with the editing and modifying of my podcasts. And I hope that you enjoy this wide-ranging discussion with Woody Sankar. Take care and enjoy the rest of your summer. Um, okay, so uh, Woody, I'm going to sort of formally welcome you into uh, the podcast. Uh, you've been on my list since sort of day one. Uh, we've gotten the opportunity to work together now a bunch, and I'm, I've really been looking forward to this. Um, for the listener, I've, Woody was really sort of the, um, the guy who introduced me to the process of annual meeting planning and somebody who I've looked up to and, and have had the fortunate uh, enough opportunity to be friends with now for, for several years. So uh, thanks for doing this and, and looking forward to spending some time together. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. This is uh, total fun. I listen to these uh, podcasts that you've done in the past, and I always learn something from from uh, the people you have on, and uh, and you have a way of making it super interesting. So hopefully, you can make make me more interesting. But I'll yeah, do my okay. best here. It's going to be easy. Um, so you know, I, I I always sort of start. I feel boring at times, but I always like sort of a good uh, good Genesis story. Um, and I know your academic pedigree having gone to Cornell and then Penn. So I'm sort of making the assumption, I think we've talked about it a little bit before, but can you give, can you paint a little picture about, you know, what your childhood was like, you know, what you were like with it uh, as a kid and, and, and what your family was like as, as it sort of pertains to your, your trajectory towards medicine? Yeah. So, um, you know, medicine was never really my early career goal if, uh, at any point, to be honest. Really? You know, I, I was uh, born as the uh, second son of two immigrants 
who came here for graduate school in the 60s when uh, immigration was much more uh, loose and welcoming uh, than it seems to be these days. So my parents actually uh, both came from India and they actually met in this country. And they uh, both individually came on their own scholarships to do graduate work at the University of Michigan. So very rare for that time. My mom had kind of turned down an arranged marriage and was like, nope, I'm pursuing my own my own stuff. And she kind of came to Michigan and then met my father here and, and didn't have a lot of money. They grew up incredibly poor, my father particularly, incredibly poor. So they, you know, lived off their scholarship money. And, um, you know, they actually got married before they ever went back to India to introduce each other to their uh, respective families. It's kind of an interesting story. So, um, you know, my parents just started out in a small company in Massachusetts, which was uh, Digital Equipment Corporation, which at the time was the second largest kind of U.S. computer company after uh, IBM. And it was a big, it, was, it had a big footprint in New England, which is where I grew up. And so I, bottom line is I was a, a child of engineers. Uh, and so I kind of grew up immersed in the sciences and, and kind of, you know, thinking that that's kind of what you did. You know, you, you uh, were an engineer or a scientist and there really wasn't any other jobs out there. Um, I have an older brother who's six years older than me, um, who had a similar kind of thing. He kind of went off uh, to engineering school at Cornell. Um, we didn't overlap, but I kind of followed in his footsteps um, because I had such a you know good feeling and good thoughts about Cornell based on his experience. And it was one of those colleges that also was well-rounded and other things. So I had a really strong engineering school, but had a lot of other options. And I was even though I knew that science was going to be somewhere in science is where I was going to work, I, I kind of at least had some appreciation for for the fact that there was a little bit more out there. So I didn't want to go to a highly technical school. And so um, so after growing up and, uh, you know, getting into college, so that's where I went to Cornell. And, and I really had almost zero interest in being uh, in medicine. I honestly never thought about it, even though a lot of people with my ethnic background end up in medicine. Nobody in my particular family were doctors. None of my um, cousins, none of my uncles or aunts. And I really did not have a lot of family here beyond my parents um, to kind of fall back on. And so I just went to school to be an engineer. uh, And, you know, about two to three years into college, even though I enjoyed kind of the the coursework, I just didn't really see an endpoint. I was actually a material science major. And I was, you know, all the research that we were doing uh, was based on semiconductor processing because that's where all the money is in material science is making a chip run a little bit faster. And I just didn't, I just didn't see it. I just was like, I don't think I want to do this. I don't really, you know, I don't, I don't think this is what I want to do the rest of my life is, is, uh, is do this. And so I can't remember who it was, but, you know, one of my college friends at the time kind of said, Hey, you know, you know, you're pretty good at science and you know, you're reasonable talking to people. Have you ever thought about going to med school? And, uh, I kind of thought about it a little bit and, and was like, you know what? Sure. And I, I, I didn't go to med school or apply to med school with this, you know, long arching plan. I just was like, you know what, I'm going to give it a go and I'm going to see if I like it. So I stayed uh, between, oh, I can't remember if my sophomore, junior, junior and senior year, but took bio over the summer. And then, you know, I had all the requirements done because of engineering school. And uh, and then I just kind of applied. And my profile, you know, I had never um, saved children in Uganda or um, or done a ton of nursing home volunteerism. I just was a person that was decent in science and and felt like I could have a conversation with somebody. And so my profile was was really more as a researcher. And so I got in actually as an MD-PhD to Penn. And that was, you know, the best med school I got into. And I got in as an MD-PhD. And, and uh, I just said, you know what? Well, that's where I'm going to go. And I give it a shot. So I moved down to Philadelphia and, and didn't know anybody in Philadelphia. And, you know, enrolled in med school and, and absolutely loved it. And then when I 
started kind of thinking about what field I would be in. You know, I actually, I always liked working with kids. I was kind of that guy growing up as a teenager that, you know, was a camp counselor and, uh, you know, kind of liked working with uh, uh, kids on younger sports teams and things like that. And so, you know, I was like, well, you know, I, I like working with kids. Maybe I'll be a pediatrician. And and, uh, and so I thought that's what I would do, you know, a year or two into med school. Once I realized that I actually liked medicine, um, I was like, you know, I'll be a pediatrician. And then, you know, like is always the case, you often, you know, stack your more important rotations later on and you do the ones you don't care about early on. And so I did surgery first because I was like, well, there's no way I'm going to be a surgeon. And then I just fell in love with it. I fell in love with the pace, um, the lifestyle of the kind of the solving problems, the immediacy of the gratification, um, the working with the hands. And that, you know, when I think about it, clearly came from my father, who was an engineer and one of those practical engineers that always you know, fixed a car and, and always had something up on blocks and was always fixing something in the house. And I, I kind of worked along with him. But then it kind of came full circle uh, in, in med school when I realized that I could take some of those things that I had done growing up and then actually do them in a human body and, and, uh, and make a difference perhaps in somebody's life. So uh, as is always the case, you know, you kind of start thinking about surgery and, 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 and you're still kind of figuring out what, you, what you're going to do. But it's always this, you know, one or two people that I find kind of really redirect your life. I think of it as like a pinball. You're kind of like bouncing around in your life and then you hit this person that just like bounces you in a direction and and um, and really shapes who you are. And it's about the timing and it's about the person themselves, of course. So for me, that was Dennis Drummond, who uh, has passed away a few years ago uh, and was the uh, chief of uh, CHOP before John Dormans and before John Flynn or Jack Flynn. And he was just, you know, uh, you know, some people who are uh, more seasoned positive veterans uh, listening to this podcast will know Dennis because he was a larger than life personality. I think a lot of the younger members will not have known who he is, but he is um, near and dear to all of us who have, uh, you know, some some history at CHOP. He was just this incredible magnetic personality, very funny, um, very engaging, very charismatic, an unbelievable surgeon, a pediatric orthopedist, you know, from an era of the John Hall type who could really do everything. And I remember as a, a sub-eye kind of scrubbing in with him on an anterior spine and, and, and I just looked at him and I was like, I want to be like that guy when I grow up. <laughs> and, uh, he was just so cool. And, uh, and so that's, that's what it did. So I, uh, decided to go into orthopedics because of him and I never lost my passion for kids despite, you know, everybody telling me that that was going to happen when you go into ortho and saying, oh, you, you like sports or you like something else. But no, I always stayed true to peds and then and then uh, and then finished up and the rest is history. That is an, a little I mean, it's funny because, you know, we've we've had drinks together and, and talked together and I didn't know that story. And that is exactly the opposite of what I would have sort of anticipated. But I love it. I mean, yeah. it's, it's sort of funny because. It almost makes it sound as though, you know, with your lack of exposure to medicine and a family that was sort of uh, driven towards engineering, that you probably entered medical school as naive, if you will, to sort of what was out there. And in a way, I think that's golden. Like, when was the last time you met a medical student who wasn't like, well, I really wanted to be an orthopedist since I was age two and, you know, and that kind of thing. And I think it's really great that you went in truly eyes open um, and that probably, in a way, made it so that it's, you know, the absolute perfect fit. There was probably very little 
other sort of outside influence that was played on your life uh, from it. Do you think that's that's true? Yeah, I, I, I think that's totally true. And, you know, being in a position that I am now where I talk to a lot of medical students um, or even pre-medical students that are interested in going into medicine, I, I am often surprised at how decided they are, you know. And, and unfortunately, I think the current climate with how competitive it is to get into certain residencies and so on kind of forces that upon people. And I think that's a disservice. You know, I think that you may get a lot of people that are insanely qualified to go into a field, but maybe have never stopped to think about whether that was the right field for them. Uh, and uh, yeah, f- for luck, and maybe just because I was born in a different time, I was able to kind of tack in the wind and, and, and choose a different career path. And that's worked out really well for me. But but yeah, I, I think it is a challenge. I think the harder these things get uh, and the more selective these processes, the more it, it creates less room for, you know, that organic uh, development of your own thought. Yeah. Um, I, I want to touch a little bit on, on sort of, I guess, you know, Philadelphia as a city, but, but the center in general, because it's interesting, you know, I, I trained in Dallas for fellowship and, and obviously sort of all the stuff that, um, that Tony Herring had, has built has over time. And obviously Dan's, uh, taken into, uh, this, this newer generation has built this culture that people just have such an affinity for it, but you were there for, medical school and you were there for residency and, and obviously you went away. We'll get to that in a minute. And you came back to it. What is it about that city and that center that is just so, you know, that's been so home to you? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, um, Philadelphia, well, there's a couple things, you know, um, CHOP, I think is its own discussion, which I'll get to. Um, Philadelphia really was welcoming to me because, um, it's a, it's a down to earth kind of blue collar city. You know, to me, I was just, I don't think I was cool enough to kind of hang in New York city. And, um, you know, I grew up near Boston and that place is very fond of me, but Philadelphia just really grew on me. It was just such an accessible city for somebody that was a student that was on a relatively tight budget. You know, you could go to restaurants, you could, you could do things in the city cause it was pretty affordable. You can live in a reasonable place. And, and that kind of drew me in. I, I was able to really kind of do stuff in the city as a medical student and as a resident that I'm not sure I would have been able to do in a place like, you know, Manhattan or San Francisco. So that was great. And then it is a medical town, you know, it's a little bit of a joke, you know, in New York, everybody's a banker and in DC, everybody's a lawyer, but in Philadelphia, everybody's a doctor. And so there's just, you know, a lot of medical centers around and, uh, and a lot of really interesting research going on, but it's, it's a very, um, it's a very dynamic environment to learn because there's a lot of medical students in the city. There's a lot of people kind of in that same kind of, uh, kind of, uh, track that you're in. And so there's a lot of different people that you'll meet, uh, in the city and, and a lot of collaboration amongst uh, all the different scientists in the city. So I, I think it's a very neat and exciting kind of medical area. It's obviously got a lot of history, um, not just politically, but, um, but from a medical standpoint, you know, the first hospital in the United States is actually a hospital that my wife works at. And uh, CHOP being the first children's hospital. So I think it's that combination. It's a very accessible city. It is, um, you know, it's got a lot of history and, and a lot of medical stuff going on all the way. And then CHOP is, itself is just, it's a really special place. You know, I think a lot of people who um, may be listening to this have come through at some level, either as a, a, a speaker or a student or a visitor um, but it's a really, really cool place. It's you know, enormous. It just, you know, buildings go up every two years. And, and when I look back to how big it was when I first started as a medical student, I, I'm, I'm shocked sometimes. But it's a place that is, um, you know, it's really committed um, 
to delivering excellent care. And it really, you know, everybody has some some issues with bureaucracy and and challenges with um, you know getting some things done. But I think at the end of the day, really the administrators uh, and the faculty at CHOP um, really are interested in. in doing the best for children. And, and I think if you have an idea and you want to do something and it's the spirit is excellent patient care, it will be supported. And then orthopedics specifically has always just been a gem. Um, you know, we've had unbelievable leadership again from um, Dennis Drummond uh, through Dormans to Flynn. And, and we just, we've just had, I think, one or two faculty members have left in, in 30 years. I mean, just nobody leaves because people, it's such a great place to work. We really get along with each other. Um, we, you know, I, I love my partners, uh, and we have very engaging and, uh, dynamic, uh, arguments and, and, uh, and case conferences and so on, but we have this mutual respect. Um, and we have a lot of fun. We enjoy doing what we do and we have a lot of autonomy in our system, which I think is, uh, becoming more and more rare, uh, in, uh, in surgery. And, and we have a lot of it, thankfully at CHOP. And so that kind of just creates this environment where uh, it's just a great place to be. So I, I'm, I consider myself incredibly fortunate to be where I am. That's really cool. Um, I want to touch base a little bit on sort of the training process that you went through. Um, again, you came in with this giant of Dennis Drummond as sort of your, uh, your beacon of light, if you will, but who sort of got you through residency and in particular, you know, you ended up doing two fellowships, both in L.A. Um, and I know that Colin Mosley is like just, you know, such a giant in your life. But I'd love to know sort of how that process came about and, and how you decided to, to go about doing that. Yeah. So obviously, once I was in orthopedics and uh, and was kind of thinking about, you know, whether I was going to pursue peds, which was always kind of my original thought, as I talked about, as my evolution, of my thinking, you know, very early on. Um, I obviously he's my chief now, but at the time he was just a faculty member was Jack Flynn, who really I, I, I can never I will never be able to thank him enough for for the uh, mentorship that he has given me um, through the years all the way through. I mean, residency, fellowship and obviously now as a faculty member and a partner. Um, but he was he was my guy, you know, him and, and Ted Ganley um, really helped me um, during residency think about, you know, what kind of program I might be interested in. Um, this was back before the match. So, you know, they were the ones that, you know, introduced me to people when I went to pause and I went to pause as a third year resident and a fourth year resident and a fifth year resident. And, uh, you know, they would take me around and they would introduce me to people. And that's how I first met, you know, people like Dennis Wenger and, and, and Tony Herring and so on. And so, um, you know, they were just incredibly supportive uh, of my desire to go into pediatric orthopedics, not just from a, you know, handshaking standpoint. And, and I'm sure there were phone calls made on my behalf to help me get spots, uh, but also in research. Right. So, you know, they were um, very supportive of uh, helping me get kind of my early research program off the ground. And, uh, and, you know, again, it's all about mentorship. As you know, you've had unbelievable mentors in your life and, and you really can't do it without these people. Um and so they they really helped kind of you know get me going so to speak. And so then when it came to the time of choosing fellowship, um, again this was pre match, so it was it was a little bit of a different time. Um, I only applied to four fellowship spots because it was a little bit of the wild west, and you knew like kind of once you interviewed, you may or may not get offers, and they were exploding offers, and you kind of had to scramble. So there was none of this like, well, I'll look at twelve programs or fifteen programs and then sit back and think about it. Kind of the word on the street was you had to be ready to go and almost kind of have a sense very early on kind of how this is going to go because, you know, you didn't have a lot of time to kind of work this out. So my wife, 
who is an, uh, an, an incredible surgeon who is a urologist. She does uh, female pelvic floor uh, reconstruction stuff. Her fellowship that she really, really wanted to go to was in L.A., and it was a two-year fellowship. So she had one year of clinical stuff and one year of research. And just to re- remind people who may be listening, like, again, pre-match, she never even interviewed for her fellowship. Again, hers, hers is obviously a different field, but, like, she just got a phone call, and that was it. She never flew out there. She never interviewed. That's amazing. Got a phone call, and it was like, yep, we'll take you, because her chairman said, this is where I need you to go, and, and that's how it went. So so she she was going to L.A., and that was pretty locked in, and I was trying to figure out how that was going to go. We were um, – engaged at the time, but not married. Uh, and we were fine being apart for a year, but obviously all things, everything else being equal, I'd rather have been in the city with her. And so, you know, I looked at several programs, about three or four programs and, and, um, you know, really enjoyed, uh, my interview and my time in Los Angeles and, and Vern Tolo, who is another incredibly influential, uh, figure in my life, my professional life obviously was, uh, you know, in his prime out in LA and so, uh, you know, it just kind of worked out. It was very natural that she was going to be there. It was a great opportunity in Los Angeles. Uh, and so I did that. And now she had a two-year fellowship. So I had another year to figure out what I wanted to do because I knew we were going to try to look for jobs together. And as I had gone through the fellowship interview process, this was very, very early on, very early in the hip preservation stuff. I, I, it's really remarkable when I think about this, but I've been going to PASA since I was a third-year resident. Amazing. Yeah. I've I've never missed a year actually. And so, um, I remember sitting in the back of the annual meetings in, you know, when I was a PGY four resident, uh, or even a chief resident the year after and like hearing about this stuff, like a PAO and a surgical dislocation for a skiffy and being like, what is this stuff? And, you know, cause I hadn't seen any of that stuff in my residency and, uh, it, you know, cause it was so early on and I was like, wow, this is really neat. You know, God, I really cool to learn these skills, you know, and I had interviewed at Boston children's, um, which of course is an amazing, uh, program, but you know, it was obviously very far from Los Angeles. And, and, uh, and so there were some reasons, even though that was kind of my hometown and I had a lot of friends and family up in that area, you know, there were some reasons why the West coast was a better fit for me at the time, but I couldn't shake that, that piece of the adolescent hip or what we now call hip preservation, kind of that, that little, you know, that little nugget that was there. I was like, wow, you know, you know, young Joe Kim was there and Mike Mills is obviously doing his thing. And it was such a cool place doing that. I, 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 that was Mike, my, that was the thing I would had the toughest time uh, going out to LA because LA didn't really have much of that. And I said, man, I really would love to learn this stuff. I don't, I don't know what I'm going to be doing in my future life, but, but man, that seems like really cool surgery to learn how to do. So after I matched in LA, um, or not matched, after I, I took my fellowship in LA, you know, I talked to Jim Castor and eventually talked to Mike Mills. And I said, you know, is there any chance that I could come out? Because they had a hip fellowship and they still do uh, a hip preservation fellowship or an adolescent hip fellowship, whatever you want to call it. And it was one of these fellowships that was a little bit under the radar. It was there, but, you know, there weren't a ton of people interested in this at the time. And so they said, yeah, sure, you know, we can take you. And then they normally took people for a year. And I said, you know, I kind of negotiated down to six months so I didn't have to be too far away from my, uh, at that time, wife um, for, you know, for the whole year. And so I kind of had that set up. So I had a year in LA and then I had, um, cause we were getting married that summer. I, I chose to do it the second half of the year. So then I had the six months in between my LA fellowship and my Boston fellowship as kind of time to kill. And I thought about a couple things, thought of doing some locum tenens, but eventually I, I just realized that you know, Colin Mosley was three miles away and uh, at the Shriners hospital in Los Angeles. And, and, you know, that wasn't a super busy fellowship. It didn't really fill their fellowship spot. And so they kind of just 
had, you know, a fellowship on paper, but a fellowship that didn't fill. And I just called him up and said, Colin, you know, we were Dr. Mosley, of course, um, you know, would you be interested in, in having me? And, and he and Vern Tolo were close friends. And so that was, it just kind of became, became very easy. So I just kind of came in having already done a fellowship. I worked primarily with him. There were some other great faculty members there and Tony Scuduto and Rick Bowen, who taught me uh, some stuff as well, and Norma Tsuka. But I really spent the bulk of my time with Colin, whose um, open DDH experience was just unmatched. Uh, and so I worked with him very frequently and then did um, outreach clinics in Mexico, seeing just like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of neglected or, or late diagnosed DDH cases. And we were doing three to four open reductions a week. And and I just got tons of reps in, which was really cool. And then, you know, combining that with my boss experience, I really felt like I got that kind of birth to total hip uh, experience, uh, which I think has served me well in my practice. Yeah, man, that is such, it's, it is so cool. It's, it, I think one of the common, you know, messages that comes across when I've talked to people is, you know, just the, 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 the luck and, and the doors that open, um, oftentimes by, by looking for open doors. But, uh, I mean, it really couldn't have worked out better to have somebody like Colin Mosley, whose fellowship wasn't quite as busy, but has this en enormous practice in something that, you know, in the U S nowadays is sort of fleeting, be able to do that and then go on and do, uh, a hip press fellowship at, at, in its infancy after an entire, uh, year, with I'm sure, you know, Skaggs and Tolo and they were super busy. Uh, so you got this, you know, this, uh, a really rounded, almost like, you know, personalized fellowship experience. So what, what a neat opportunity. Yeah. It, you know, it's funny cause I academically I'm known as a, um, a hip surgeon, but I love doing spine. And, yeah. and so, you know, it's almost like I did, you know, tons of spine with, uh, with Vern and, and Dave, um, obviously got a lot of great CP training from Bob K as well. And then, combine that with a hip. So it's like almost like I did a year of spine and then a year of hip with, uh, you know, some general stuff sprinkled in there. So it ended up matching my interest perfectly. That's great. Um, I want to turn uh, to, you know, a little bit of your career and sort of you, you, you touched on your academics. Um, you know, I, I, I look at you obviously as a great academician, um, but in, in many ways uh, for, a lot of the leadership roles, like I mentioned at the beginning, I mean, you were the person who sort of showed me the ropes on, on the annual meeting, but I think that you've had a, no, a tremendous number of leadership roles, both uh, within POSM, but also at CHOP. And I'm sort of curious at, at what point you uh, started to, to make that sort of something that was intentional. Maybe it wasn't ever, but it's, you know, it seems as though you've had a very logical, natural progression through leadership positions. And I'm just curious sort of how that um, occurred. Was it organic or was it something that you started to sort of plan out under somebody like Jack's guidance? Yeah, you know, it's a great question. Um, I, 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 it really, I would say the intentional piece was the fact that I wanted to do research and I, I wanted to contribute to the field. I, 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 it was very clear. And a lot of people say this, as you know, you interact with fellows a lot, you know, Everybody will say, I, you know, I want to be, I want to be in academics when I, when I go into um, uh, get a job. But you know what that means is different to other people. Some people really mean it in terms of education. They want to be around trainees. For me, like I, I really, really wanted to do research, and 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 I and I think a lot of people say that, but they may not. That may not actually be the, the true motivation. I, I really do. I love it. I love kind of figuring things out and kind of working to refine things and trying to feel like I'm moving the needle. It's obviously very hard to do, um, but you know, my my hope is that when my career is done, that 
not just the patients I've taken care of, but some of the work I've done have have changed things or the way that people are taken care of beyond just my institution. So that's always been a very driving uh, motivation for me. And that probably goes back to my investigational personality from being you know, a researcher in a lab as an engineer. Um, so I think that 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 was always intentional that, that I was going to make that a part of my life and I was going to I was going to try to be really good at that that was important but the rest of it you know I don't know I I I, I can't say that I um said you know I really want to be a program chair or I really want to be this I I I would say it was more that was more organic I again I have to thank my mentors you know doors opened to me because you know I I knew people uh that vouch for me, like Vern Tolo and Dave Skaggs and, and Jack Flynn and, and Ted Gamley and, and so on and, and Young Joe Kim and so on. So, you know, these people, when there were opportunities for, you know, uh, a lecture, for example, when um, they couldn't make it uh, and they said, hey, you know, why don't you think about Woody? And, and, and so that was those kind of things were really neat. Or when they were doing a study and said, hey, you know, we could use another site or something like that. And then they would call me up. I think that that's kind of how it started. And then you know, a lot of people ask me, you know, again, how do you kind of get going in society stuff? And I, I think it's just kind of capitalizing on those opportunities that you get. So like when you get that first lecture that, that somebody, because the, the, the A person that they want couldn't make it or is traveling and then you're the B choice, well, just knock it out of the park and make it an A lecture. And, uh, and then, you know, my, I, I think you'll get another call. And, and that's kind of how it happened. I, you know, again, I, I just, tried to work hard and I try, I feel like, and this comes back to my parents a hundred percent, you know, you're only as, as good as, you know, how you perform. Like you, if you, if you, you can't take anything for granted, you just have to work your butt off. And if somebody gives you a job on a committee or somebody has a, you know, a research project or something, you just gotta, you know, you gotta do your best on every, every single thing that you, that you put your name on, um, you gotta do your best on. And I think that, you know, I think I was lucky enough that um, I got opportunities through my mentors, but then I would like to think that, you know, I made the most of the opportunities that were given to me. And then what happens is always the case, like if you do a good job on something, other doors will open. And that's true in any aspect of life. I think when you you know bust your butt and you give it your all, um, you know, other opportunities will open up. And I think it's just kind of grown from there. I, I have always been incredibly fond of Posna as a society. Uh, again, like I just, even as a resident on as an outsider where I didn't know anybody, you know, other than the couple of faculty members at CHOP and I would just stand around at the, uh, at the, at the, uh, you know, coffee breaks and not know anybody to talk to even from those days to now where I'm uh, lucky enough to know my, many more people in the society. It's just such a, a, a great group of people. They're so approachable. They're so down to earth everybody's just at ease and enjoying each other's presence. And that's just not how it is, as we all know, at a lot of other societies. And so I just, I, I have so much loyalty to the, to the society. And so when I started to get opportunities to be able to give back to the society, I, I, you know, I took them and tried to do my best with them. Yeah. Well, I think, I think that's, that's great. And I, I would say that, that you have, which is, which is awesome. So I, I came up with a, I had this question that was sort of interesting. You know, one of the things that, I've touched on with other guests uh, is how full your life gets um, as you get further into practice. And I've one of the guys who sort of originally recruited me to Emory, who's a total joint partner uh, who I went to residency with said, you know, yeah, the first eight years, you're just going to be sort of going, man, when's it going to happen? And then about, you know, seven, eight years in, you're going to go, Oh my God, how do I make it stop? Not meaning the surgery, but just everything, just the yeah. volume of, of yep. stuff. And so I'm curious, 
um, you know, you, you mentioned your love for research and, and I think it, it, it's, it's obvious in your love for POSNA, but if you could give a rank of priority for your non-clinical duties now versus say seven, eight years ago, how would you rank research your, uh, your role within sort of chop leadership, practice management, et cetera, and POSNA? And then I'm curious how what how would that how would that look now? In other words, what's changed over time in terms of sort of how you rank prioritize the things outside of your clinical care and your family? Yeah, good question. So um, I would say my first. So I'm 14 years in practice. So um, I would say my first five six years it was definitely research. It was getting getting that stuff off the ground. Kind of that was also the time where study groups were kind of exploding, and so um, you know I was lucky enough again right right person in the right place at the right time uh, to get involved in a lot of the work that ICI was doing and, and Anchor and and all these other um, uh, really uh, productive hip study groups, which is, you know, it, it's been great. So I really was focusing on research. Um, and then I would say um, the transition, you know, maybe six, seven years ago um, started to be much more into a kind of society direction. So um, that's when uh, opportunities began. I, I was lucky enough to be a junior member uh, at large on the board. Um, and then uh, a few years later, I did um, back when we had the AOS of Specialty Day, uh, I did that. And then um, pre-course chair and then program chair. And then I uh, had a couple uh, other um, things that I've done through the fellowship committee, working on, on creating the positive fellowship and then some workforce stuff. I guess it goes on and on. And then secretary. But I... Um, it does sound like a long list there, but it, it um, yeah, it really kind of each one kind of led to the next, but I would say it definitely started to move my priorities over to society. So I would say right now, I would say outside of my clinical work, I would say probably the society is first. My research is definitely, I, I still obviously do a lot of research. Um, I have a lot of stuff kind of continually going in the background. And, and I think that I'm fortunate enough to have kind of established a research infrastructure that I won't say like runs itself, but doesn't require as much of my my actual daily uh, investment in terms of uh, energy capital. Um, I have more of an advisory role, a lot of uh, medical students working with me and so on that I kind of work through some things with them. But, uh, but research, I say, lower down on the list. And then I think what's increasing certainly over the last couple of years uh, is my role at CHOP and trying to be the best member of our division and trying to support Jack Flynn uh, in his uh, division chief role to the best of my ability. That's so fun. I mean, I like to, to a T that's sort of a, what I would have expected. It's also what's happened to me and I've been in practice. I think, I can't remember if we were uh, the same year or after your second fellowship or a year apart, but it, so very similar. And I, and I think that, you know, I've, I've been asked a number of times sort of through this medium about, getting started and how you get started. And I think that's incredibly valuable for the younger listeners. Um, and I was told by uh, my chair at Emory, Scott Bowden, who is known for sort of really discovering the mechanism of action of BMP and, and uh, how that works in healing of the spine, that the single most important thing that, that he did was to really establish a research practice early on in his career, because you can't do that 10 years in. You can do that right away, but you're just you know, you're not going to have the um, uh, the time and the uh, and the ability to to really dedicate to creating something like that ten years in. So I, th- I think you did it right, and and uh, it's, it's really neat to see. Let me ask you a little bit about the clinical side of things. So you know, you you mentioned your hope uh, that as you 
as you close out your career, which obviously a long way off, that you have made a difference in how people treat different conditions. And I'd say that like just me personally as, as a friend and, and colleague you have, at least in terms of, of things that you've done, I pay attention to. And I'm curious how you innovate. How do you think about innovation and what are some of the, the facilities that you have either, you know, just through your group or through relationships that you have with enough other people who, who want to push that envelope as well to think outside the box on new treatments or approaches to, you know, challenging conditions, which I know you see a lot of. Um, <laughs> so I, I think there's a lot of different levels to this. Um, I think that at some level, you know, some of the innovation just comes from kind of everyday problems that aren't really the zebras, but they're just kind of like the, the issues that we do with all the time. So one that I've written a fair bit about is, you know, bracing, right? Non-operative treatment for DDH and, and whether part-time bracing makes a difference and then what to do if a pavlik doesn't work. And like I've talked a lot about in some of my writings about the Ilfell brace. And so these aren't like, you know, these aren't like exotic, um, you know, three column uh, spinal resections. Like they're just, it's a brace and it's a non-operative treatment, but it's something that everybody sees and we all scratch our heads when we have these patients with some mild residual dysplasia or a patient where the pavlika is kind of like not working so great. It's kind of sitting there in neutral and you kind of don't know what to do. And so I think that part of it has been like, all right, even for those everyday questions that may not be groundbreaking, there's got to be a better way to do this, or we have to have some better evidence for the decisions we make. So I think, um, I guess the first piece I would say is the desire to even make the routine more evidence-based and more effective. And, uh, and so I think you just being willing to try different things and, and, and talking to patients and being very upfront of what you don't know, and what you do know. Uh, and so, you know, when I did this, you know, I did a paper, which, you know, wasn't anything amazing, but we did a paper with thermal sensors in the, in the brace to figure out whether part-time bracing made a difference and whether it was dose dependent. And I just had to tell these families, listen, like, I don't know if this makes so much of a difference. I'm going to put this heat sensor in. I promise you, your kid won't swallow it. And, uh, and let me know in six months, we'll see, bring it in and we'll see whether it made a difference and whether the, the time correlated with that. So I think that's, that's one thing, just kind of, you know, it doesn't have to be a huge problem. It could be a kind of an everyday routine problem that you just want to try to hammer out and, and make easier. And that's when you're going to see more volume of it. So you'll be able to get the power to that, to that research question much quicker. Um, I think the other thing of the innovation is, um, is collaborating, uh, with people. So, you know, I would say I'm not the best idea guy, you know, I, you know, some of our friends, John Schenker, unbelievable idea guy, you know, Iris Alts, unbelievable idea guy. You know, I, I, I would like to say, I think I have my, my share of thoughts about some things, but, you know, I think that sometimes I've recognized that my role can be maybe taking an idea that somebody has not taking from them, but basically helping them finish the project, you know? So Ira and I have done a lot of stuff together where, you know, he's the brains behind it. He's the, he's the guy that's come up with some really interesting thoughts, but he's really busy. And, and, uh, and, you know, at a time earlier in my career, I had a little bit more time and I was like, listen, that's a really cool idea. You know, 80% of the patients are yours, 20% are mine, but I can get this paper done and, and, and you can't, and, and we'll put it out together, you know? So collaborating with people, I think it's really key. I, you know, in research, we, we forget about this, right? But there are different skills. Like data analysis is, is a different skill than writing really well, which is a different skill than, you know, conceptualizing 
a study idea. So like we tend to think like you're a good researcher or not a good researcher, but I don't think that's how it is. I think there are people that have strengths. There are people that are really good writers. There are people that are really good finishers. There are people that are really good idea people. And I think it works when you get all those people together and then you can get it done. Because we all know, I know you know this, that there are people out there who have unbelievable ideas. They just never get their idea to publication because they just can't organizationally get it done or they just, you know, stall out or they just, they just don't have the interest in grinding it uh, through. And so I think sometimes, well, I may not have the best idea in the room. I, I, I'm a finisher. And so I think sometimes working with these people, I can kind of get their idea or our collective idea across the finish line. Yeah, that's great. Uh, those are, those are huge points. Um, I, I wanted to talk, uh, I, I did this last, uh, month when I had John Davids on, I've done it a couple of times and I, I just find it so interesting. And I, and the, the guys, Colin or, uh, Carter rather, and Craig and, uh, Julian and the other podcast does this a little bit as well, but I was sort of, I thought it'd be interesting given your, your, uh, knowledge and scope of sort of hip pathology, um, and your involvement from a research standpoint to ask you, for a couple of conditions, what do you think the biggest void in our knowledge about caring for that condition is? And I'm going to start with DDH because it's something that's so near and dear to your heart and you've published so much on. And there's, it's obviously, it's a little bit of a loaded question. I mean, I'm, you could give me the next 80 minutes on this, but like what's sort of the one big void? And part of the reason I ask this is just, I'm sort of curious. And part of the reason that I ask this gets back to your, your, the, point you were just making, which is that some people aren't great idea generators um, and they need an idea. And you may provide sort of a, a general concept that somebody out there listening could go, hey, you know, I heard Woody Sankar talk about this. So within DDH, what do you think the biggest void in our understanding or, or where our limitations are right now? So uh, I'm going to call it, well, I, I don't love the term, but I guess that what people think of as AVN. Um, to me, um, understanding proximal femoral growth disturbance and, and what really causes it because it's wrapped up in remodeling, right? So, so people that really take care of this understand that while there may be some vascular underpinning to it, it's not the same, right? It's not, it's not the same as a dislocated, uh, uh, hip that's traumatic and, and you lose blood supply to the femoral head and then the head dies. It's, you know, it's very, very different. And this is why we see these issues years later. Is it, you know, pressure on the head? Is it really vascular? Is it a growth disturbance? Is it hyperemia? So to me, there's so much wrapped into proximal femoral growth disturbance in terms of how the femoral head remodels, how the acetabulum remodels, um, why you get these late changes. Uh, to me, that's the, the biggest black box in, in DDH and the thing that, uh, you know, I, I, I hope that we have somewhat better answers for, uh, you know, a couple of decades from now. I love it. I, I did two cases on Monday and, um, and the, that was something that I was talking to residents about. Um, okay. How about Skiffy? Um, you know, I think the mechanical stuff has been, um, pretty well outlined. Um, I think, you know, the treatment is still a tricky one. I, I think I'm going to actually answer a little bit of a different, which is the biology of it, which um, I, I think that we, it would be really interesting someday to truly understand, uh, you know, which kids are at highest risk for this and almost have a kind of a stratification score or some way to almost screen for these patients based on some combination of whether it's John's leptin levels or whether obesity or, or some vitamin D level. I, I think I find that really, really fascinating because I think 
that the biology of the slip um, is, is, I think, poorly understood. I think the mechanics of what happens when it slips and the shape disturbance that you get is, I think, well understood. I think that the options to reconstruct it certainly are not worked out and there, and there are shortcomings with all of this, but you can kind of get your arms around that. But I, I don't feel like we really have our arms around why uh, these things actually occur. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more. I think it's uh, it's a great unknown. Um, and, and like, I mean, you mentioned John's uh, leptin levels, and he and I have talked about that a lot. I think that um, if we could sort out better why it happens, then then we could really start to understand, you know, much more than just it's obese kids, you know, because then you have the kids who aren't obese, and you have kids who have who have other underlying conditions and, and how those all the interplay between all of those work. So, um, how about adolescent hip dysplasia? Well, I think the, residual you know, hip dysplasia, I should say, yeah, so I, I'm going to talk about, um, really the borderline patients, um, this concept of micro instability. I think people that do a lot of hip preservation, um, the easy ones are the severe dysplastics. You know, we know what the mechanical problem is, Again, our mechanical solution in terms of a of a reorienting osteotomy is not perfect. You know, it still takes existing cartilage and and so on. So it's not a perfect cure. This is why these hips eventually run out of gas and end up need to be converted. But you know, it's about as good a mechanical fix as you can have, um, all things uh, considered. But there is this, as you know, uh, anybody that takes care of these patients, there's just this huge population of predominantly women who have mild dysplasia but really severe symptoms. And, um, you know, a lot of them do get better from PAOs. Some of them don't. Um, some of them get better from hip scopes. Some of them don't. You know, and trying to understand this kind of murky world of really, really mild dysplasia, some elements of hypermobility, potentially a lot of supratentorial uh, uh, things going on as well. We don't, I think, you know, this came up with some of um, Dave Podesta's work and Mike Mills as well. There's so many um, psychological aspects to pain in adolescence that it's very complicated. Um, so to me, that's the that the, that's the hardest nut to crack, uh, at least right now, is is figuring out how much of this is a true mechanical pathology, um, how much is you know a combination of soft tissue laxity, et cetera, and how to make better decisions on these patients who often have just severe symptoms and are really desperate. And you're trying to do right by them and help them and not do unnecessary surgery. Yeah, yeah, for sure. All right, so the last one, obviously, well, that's not the last, the, the only last one. But the last one I'm going to ask about is Perthes. But I'm going to give you a little bit of a caveat that you can't say what we'd probably all say, which is we'd love to know what the underlying etiology um, is. But um, what what is sort of most interesting to you right now in, in sort of the, the care, the management of the actual disease? Well, I think it's fascinating that, you know, this disease has been described for well over 100 years and mm -hmm. we still don't know whether surgery is better than non-operative treatment. I mean, it sounds so basic, right? But we really don't know that. And, and you know, the studies out from, from Europe showing um, that, you know, femoral osteotomies are really not superior than non-operative treatment. And, uh, and then you have, you know, really good studies from Benjamin Joseph's group showing kind of the power and, and the efficacy of, of varus osteotomies. And it's just amazing, right, that here we are. We, it's not even we're talking about nuances of, of, you know, how to do this kind of treatment or how to do that. Like we flat out don't know whether surgery is better than not doing surgery. And that's a huge difference in a child's life. Uh, and, uh, and it's just remarkable to me that we, we still don't know that answer. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, we always would say, you know, for pre-op conference at, 
in Dallas at Fellowship that you would reserve the last hour for one for one Perthes case because you know when Tony and and Harry got going it was going to take some time so that's uh, ah, that's good I believe it. Um, all right, so I want to uh, sort of finish up, and um, we've got a bit more to go through uh, about Poznan. And one of the reasons uh, that I was so excited to have you on was to sort of talk a little bit about the structure of Poznan, how Poznan works. But one of the things I wanted to start with before, and you you mentioned this earlier, was what our uh, what our role within sort of the medical society is, and what it's going to look like going forward. With regards to workforce assessment, you said that you were in, you talked about the fact that you're involved with this. And I'm sort of curious if you can give the listener an update about where we're at now. How do we sustain a consistent balance between surgeons and jobs without oversaturating the market, but still maintaining a level of quality for the patients who are caring for? Yeah. So as I dug into this, and I will give credit to Jeff Sawyer, who really was the architect behind the first um, significant workforce project that was done uh, several years ago. And then as uh, he was president last year, kind of charged me with um, kind of repeating the effort or relooking at the same issue. And the um, impetus was really the kind of whispers on the lane of from various fellowship programs saying that it was getting a little bit harder to find jobs for graduating fellows. And then this kind of this notion that perhaps we may be oversaturating the market. So that's what led to the kind of workforce being um, uh, uh, workforce task force being convened uh, about a year ago, I think it was, uh, and then kind of working through its uh, through its processes. And I want to thank the the number of the people that were on the task force. There's too many to kind of go through in, the, in this, but it was a, it was definitely a group effort. So what we learned from that um, was that number one, workforce assessments are extraordinarily complicated. Um, there's just so many factors that are in play, like. You know, what's the market like? Are people going to retire if the market's down? Um, you know, what are, you know, growth rates in populations? What are, um, you know, how many people are going to get sick in the next uh, few years? It's just, it's, there's so many layers that are um, macroeconomic factors and microeconomic factors. And, and all of the models that you kind of work through are all exactly that. They're models and there's assumptions baked into them. We were lucky enough to work with, um, Tom Ricketts, uh, who's a PhD, he had retired, but he basically had done this stuff for a living down at uh, University of North Carolina at the Shands Institute. And so he had done work, similar work for pediatric general surgeons. And so he had worked in this space before and he kind of uh, really helped us kind of um, uh, create some kind of structure to this uh, um, investigation and, and develop a reasonable uh, a report. So, you know, the bottom line, as I said, is that there's a lot of hand waving and there's a lot of assumptions. But but basically, it comes down to this. Um, there aren't a ton of extra kids being born. Population growth is pretty flat uh, in, in patients under the age of 18. So we have, a, we have an aging U.S. population. And I will, for the Canadian um, members of POSNA and, and beyond, I'll say, uh, unfortunately, all this stuff is really um, is really about the United States. It does not include uh, Canadian workforce assessment. So I will, I will say it's certainly not a full positive thing, but it's a, it's a U.S. Um, workforce assessment. So uh, U.S. population growth is pretty flat uh, in kids um, under 18. So, you know, it's really, that's really not where you're going to see uh, potential workforce needs. Um, it really is about reaching kids that really don't have um uh, ready access to uh, pediatric orthopedists, and then figure out again where the distribution is. And so, 
We're a little bit, you know, again, this is a summation of a lot of work. And, and the report I will tell for those that are interested is on the POSNA website. There's a workforce tab under members and you can go in and, and kind of um, there's a kind of full presentation and then some maps that might be interesting to people. But the bottom line is that we are slightly overtraining at our current rate. And this varies, but we're having somewhere around, oh, stuff roughly around 60 fellows or so, 55 to 60 fellows a year that are uh, graduating from POSNA fellowships. And uh, at that rate, we are going to be slightly uh, oversaturating the market. Um, the sweet spot is in the high 40s is probably the right number to be training. So we're not that far off, perhaps not as far off as, as some people uh, would think. But one of the other issues is that it's a, it's a distribution problem, right? So a lot of pediatric orthopedists want to work in major cities. And uh, sure, that's where a lot of population density is. But there's a lot of kids uh, in rural areas that have... Um, really long distances to travel for pediatric orthopedists. And so it's this tricky thing of, you know, if you take the number of kids and divide by the number of surgeons, it may not be so bad. But, you know, in Philadelphia, for example, there's, you know, 30 plus pediatric orthopedists, uh, whereas, um, you know, in Montana, I think currently there's zero. So it's, uh, it's, it really is a distribution thing. So I would say what we've learned is that we are, we're not so bad. We're, we're maybe slightly overtraining, but we're, we're pretty good, again, um, judging on, Future expected retirements, which, as I mentioned already, are, are, is a total assumption. It's not. It's not an easy thing to have somebody say, "I'm going to retire in three years," and hold them to it. So uh, these are all projections, and uh, and so we're slightly overtraining, but um, but we're not that far off. Not as far off as we thought we were going to be. Do you, are, it's it's super uh, interesting information, and you know we see that uh, the South's obviously probably uh, an area where you know we've got 13 surgeons in my group, but we just lost you know, a surgeon in Augusta and a surgeon in Macon. Um, and so, so we run into that. And I think some of the challenges that come up are that those surgeons uh, who are, you know, great people um, and, and uh, really, I think, doing, doing wonderful work oftentimes aren't joining pediatric groups, but are joining multi-specialty groups where they sort of get uh, beat up a little bit by their adult partners who don't want to take care of kids. So it's tough. Are you able to speak, though, because um, I think a question that comes up a lot to us is, uh, as you know, I guess we're sort of middle-aged Boston faculty now, unfortunately, but um, what the biggest needs are within our specialty. So, you know, um, it's tough when we have people who come out and say, I want to do complex spine, and that's the only thing I'm going to do, because I'm like, there's not a lot of jobs there for it. Um, were you able to, to look at specific subspecialty needs uh, within our field? No, that's harder to know, but I think your point is an excellent one. I think this is a, a little bit of a, a fundamental challenge that we have as a specialty that we're going to have to figure our, our way through, which is that, you know, a lot of people get attracted to pediatric orthopedics for the 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 oddities, right? So they go to IPOS and they see somebody like you doing, you know, amazing complex spine work or or they see somebody else doing remarkable, you know, limb deformity reconstructions. And, and so that's really alluring if you're like, wow, that's so cool. I want to kind of do that. But you're absolutely right. There's just not that much stuff to go around um, when it comes to those highly complicated things. What what pediatric orthopedists are really needed for, if you look just just based on the numbers, we need to take care of trauma and we need to take care of infection, right? So it's pus and trauma, which is exactly what people do in their first few years of practice, right? You know, and, and I think you were a part of that paper um, yep. years ago, um, looking at what the profile was of, uh, of pediatric orthopedists in their first few years, and it's predominantly infection and trauma. And, and that's where the need is, you know, and, and as adult orthopedists become less interested 
in taking care of, um, let's say like marginally complicated pediatric elbows or so on, that's where the need is, right? That's, that's the volume. That's the stuff that, you know, can't necessarily drive 10 hours to go to the, to the nearest metropolitan area to get treated. That's the stuff that has to get treated locally. And so I think that, I think that's the biggest clinical need. Um, but it may not be the sexiest thing, uh, when people, um, you know, get first exposed to pediatric orthopedics. Yeah, I think that's a great point, and, and it's probably something that as we move forward and we have venues like IPOS or POSNA needs to be, you know, spoken a little bit more loudly because, you know, uh, as you get further into your practice, your practice starts to look very different than it did at the beginning, and um, and it can be a little bit challenging when you come out. I mean, I remember coming out of Dallas and being like, oh, I can't wait to do all these, you know, vertebrectomies or complex PAOs. And I'm like, you know, my first spine was five months into practice. And, right. you know, right. I know Noel Larson, I don't think, did a single spine in her entire first year of practice. She was on that paper with me as well. And it's, it's, it's sort of tough. So, but, but good information. Um, I want to finish, and, and this is something that you and I had talked about uh, actually after the annual meeting, with a little bit of a discussion of, sort of what POSNA is and what the overarching structure is of it. Because I think that one of the uh, surprises to me um, and probably also to you as you were in that position that, that we were both fortunate enough to be in was sort of, A, I mean, honestly, at the, at the beginning, I didn't, I didn't really realize sort of what the overall structure was as much as I thought. Um, and, but I, I think it gives some clarity what, now that I've seen it and I've seen the insides as to, you know, why things happen the way they do and whatnot. So just, you know, you've been involved at so many levels. Can you give a little bit of a top-down basic overview of the society from the president down more sort of the committee members? Yeah, for sure. And, and I really want to thank uh, you, Nick, for kind of, um, you know, broaching this topic. I think this is something, again, when you hear whispers and you talk to younger members, I think there's a lot of mystery uh, surrounding the society. I think people kind of, you know, see the annual meeting and they see the academic side, but they don't really fully understand kind of how our processes work. And uh, I think it's important. And as we have such a large candidate membership, I think sometimes the, it can seem opaque. And, and, and I think we as a society need to do a much better job of making things more transparent and more understandable so that um, candidate members and younger members can like, you know, see the roadmap for what they might want to do. So I really, I think this is a great uh, forum and hopefully this will be kind of well received, but um, you know, our society is, you know, we have a, a board of directors. Um, I think that's the, you know, the first and foremost. Um, and so the board of directors is made up by a number of people. There are um, six at-large members, uh, and they are there's a kind of junior designation and a senior designation, which is um, somewhat arbitrary based on age. But it, it, it's supposed to be a, a, a mix in terms of vintage, in terms of the of the membership. That's its intent. Um, and then you have kind of the presidential line, which I think is the key leadership piece of, of the whole society. And so the presidential line includes the past past president, the past president, so the two presidents that had previously been there, the current president. Then you have the president-elect, uh, which will obviously take over as the president the following year, and then um, vice president, who will move into the president-elect role. So if you think about that, there's five presidents you know, the current one, the two past, and then the, the two incoming that are kind of, I would say, the the key piece of the, of the whole leadership structure. Um, so those five people are on the board. The six at-large members are on the board. 
and then you have a secretary and a treasurer. And so that makes up the 13 voting members of the board. And the board meets uh, at least quarterly, but certainly has you know conference calls uh, in between when certain society matters have to be dealt with. And, and that's where essentially the, the, the work of the society is executed. I think that the day-to-day work, um, kind of the smaller issues, if you will, are really handled by the presidential line. And they have a weekly conference call uh, that they do, which I believe, I mean, I'm not 100% positive about this, but it's the past president for sure, the president, the vice president, president-elect. I don't think the second past president joins that, but I might be, I might be wrong about that. And those are the people that kind of, you know, every week kind of do the conference call, run through some things that have to be done, kind of keep the, the, the momentum going. And then when issues need to be resolved, they kind of come to the board level and then they get discussed at, at the board level. And I'll also mention that, you know, the society work is just absolutely dependent on the work of, uh, of the, the staff at POSNA who, you know, for people listening that don't know these people, I would encourage you to introduce yourself to them uh, at the next meeting because they just, their role is so vital uh, as you know, Nick, and this, you know, I'm speaking of Terry Steck, who's the, uh, you know, executive director of POSNA and then her whole team uh, um, who really supports, and there's different, you know, different people that have different specialties. So Tara Long and Eric Linsky are involved in running IPOS, and, and um, uh, you know, there's a number of people that, that uh, you know, that I, I can name everybody, but KP and Molly help with uh, membership. And there's just there's a huge team that really um, helps support all this stuff. But, but Terry is the leading uh, member of this and kind of helps. She's on those conference calls with the presidential line and, and helps um, kind of transition stuff to the board. So those are the 13 members of the board. Um, there are non-voting members of the board, and these are the council chairs. And so we have several councils um, within POSNA, and underneath those councils are the various committees. Now, the committees have actually just recently undergone a restructuring because we, to be honest, had too many. There were a lot of committees, and it became just a little bit unwieldy. And so Dan is one of his um, kind of items that he worked on in his uh, year leading up to his presidency and then kind of instituted it as he took over president. It was kind of a restructuring of the committees. So the council chairs essentially have a number of committees working underneath them. And see, these are things like education council chair or healthcare delivery council chair and communication council chair. And then there's, uh, you know, the president has a council and secretary has a council. But what happens is these council chairs, each of them, are at the board meeting. And so they will present any issues that result from the committees that are underneath them. So those members like the healthcare delivery, the education council and so on are non-voting members of the board, but they sit at the board uh, and they bring issues from their committees and relay the information from the board back to their committees. So again, you got the board, you got the, which is made up of predominantly presidential line at large members. Those are the people that are generally doing the voting plus the treasurer and secretary. And then I wouldn't say underneath them, but equal to them are the, the council chairs and the council chairs are essentially, um, a means of communication between the committees and the board. So the council chairs are representing their various committees at the board level, if that makes sense. And then underneath each council chair are a number of committees. And it obviously depends on, on, the, on the council itself. But as you might imagine, under education council are things like, you know, the annual meeting or the, or the, um, uh, and the annual meeting uh, uh, committee and um, uh, AOS uh, course committee. And so, so anything under education is going to kind of funnel up to the education council chair, anything in terms of like the website or ortho kids 
or advocacy is going to come up through the communication council chair. So that's that's kind of how that works. And then underneath them, obviously, as I said, there's just there's a number of committees that, you know, deal with the various different aspects and, and some of them come and go. So we've sunset several of them in the last few years. QSVI, for example, was a, had a ton of committees out there and that's been kind of consolidated. So there are changes, but essentially the structure remains pretty similar year to year. Yeah. Can, can you talk a little bit, because I think a, a similar question that, that was super helpful and, and um, you know, it's uh, it was, it was really well laid out um, about sort of how one moves through that. In other words, uh, from a committee standpoint, committees you can obviously volunteer for, um, but beyond that, whether you become a committee chair or council chair and then up to the board, how, how that election or how that, how that uh, appointment occurs, um, really all the way up to the presidential line. Yeah, so a little different. So committees, there is a committee assignment program we call CAP that um, is open to anybody who wants to volunteer. And so that typically occurs around the time of the annual meeting. And essentially, you know, emails will go out to all positive members saying, hey, listen, if you're interested in any committees, we kind of funnel it through this program, which we call CAP, which basically is it's a matching program. It just helps you kind of helps the society kind of work through everybody instead of people just emailing in what they want to do, which would be, you know, really hard to work through. It's basically just a way to kind of um, take in people's um, priorities or, or, uh, or interest levels in, in different types of committees. So you can look through that program. You can read the little blurb on what each committee does. And then you could say, this is my first choice. This is my second choice. This is my third choice. And I will say that everybody will, who wants to be on a committee will find a home. I think Paz has done an amazing job about that over the years. Um, we know that this is a society that's built on, you know, volunteering of, of its members. And we certainly want to support and encourage anybody at any level who wants to be involved to be able to do that. So you will not be turned away. Um, you might not get your first choice depending on uh, what it works out, but it's just very easy to do. You just, you know, fill out that application. Maybe you put a couple lines in about, you know, why you think you might be interested in this or that. And then the committee assignments get kind of made. Now the committee assignments get made. That's gone a little bit of an evolution. Um, historically, it used to be the incoming president would make all the committee assignments, which is a lot of work um, as our society has grown. It's now tr uh, transitioned a little bit where the council chairs are kind of working as a first pass to kind of get people into the various different committees. And we, you know, most of the committees have term limits. So you're maybe three years on the fellowship committee or something, and then you rotate off. So we know who's coming off and we got to kind of get new people and new blood into that. So um, the council chairs in the presidential line kind of basically match people, if you will, into, into the committees and open spots, but it's not, it's not a tryout. Like it's, it's, everybody will get an opportunity. It's just, you know, a matter of kind of matching priorities to needs of the society. So that's how you get in. And then, um, and then each committee is very different. There's a lot of committees that have a ton of summer work. So fellowship committee, for example, is very, very busy in the summer. There's other committees that are a little bit more sleepy. There's other committees that are very timed. So membership committee has a very kind of cadence to it based on when membership applications come in and have to get reviewed. So every committee has kind of a different cadence to it. But basically, when you come in, there'll be a committee chair who will be a more senior member of the committee. So it won't be their first year on the committee. It's usually somebody that has been in the committee for several years and who the outgoing committee chair has said to the council chair and to the presidential line and to the BASA staff that, listen, I'm going out, but so-and-so has done a really good job as a committee member. I think this person should take over as uh, committee chair. That's kind of how it happens. So 
it's a kind of a recommendation of the outgoing committee chair, kind of essentially like who's done a good job on the committee. Uh, and so that's where I would say for the candidate members out there or the younger members, you know, you can get into committees very easily and, and pick a committee you're interested in um, that you're passionate about, you know, um, whether it's wellness or whether it's, you know, uh, whether it's education or trauma or whatever it is. And then just, you know, do your best, you know, and there will, you know, there's always on these conference calls, there's always a few items that want to get done. And, you know, as you know, Nick, you've been on all these calls where it just kind of goes quiet. We'll just volunteer, say, I'll take that, I'll do that, you know, and that's how you get noticed. And then um, if you do a good job on the committee, then, you know, next thing you know, a year or two later, you might end up being asked to be committee chair. And then if you do a good job on that, then then you're kind of, you get noticed and then you get, might get uh, tapped on the shoulder to do some do some other projects as well. So that's kind of how it starts. That's kind of, I would say, the lowest level uh, of entry uh, into um, into POSNA is through the committees. And then I think I talked a little bit about the committee chair. So then um, after that, kind of the next, you know, well, again, there's so many different paths and so many different ways to contribute to POSNA. But if we're kind of following this particular lineup, um, council chairs get chosen by um, uh, the presidential line, predominantly the incoming president. Who says you know the, these are the people who um, have done a lot of work on their committees and, and have had you know a track record of uh, a lot of uh, success in the space of getting stuff done and I'm gonna you know I want this person to be council chair uh, for education because they've done you know a ton of work they've worked on these committees in, in the education council before and they have a lot of experience and I feel like I trust that person to do a good job so that you don't really run for those you get. Um, kind of chosen based on um, a track record of, of accomplishment within, usually within that committee. So it's very uncommon to get somebody who, you know, did a lot of stuff in education who gets tapped to be research council chair. You know, it's usually like you kind of work your way up the ranks and kind of go that way. So I think that covers uh, committees and council chairs. And then uh, next one you wanted to do was presidential line, I guess. Yeah, well, like uh, I'd say the board and the presidential line. Uh, yeah. So then, um, the rest of the positions really are elected, and they're elected by the membership directly. But it isn't, and this is very purposeful, it's not a campaigning situation. It's not like anybody can run for any kind of office. We rely, as a lot of societies do, on a nominations committee. And so the reason for that is to kind of take it out of the board's hands and also to kind of avoid this kind of campaigning situation where people are like, you know, wanting to run for this or run for that. So what happens is the membership, uh, and this actually, we're actually in this process right now, uh, based on the time of year that we're at, is that the membership committee, or sorry, the membership coming out of the annual meeting will take nominations for the nomination committee. So the nomination committee is the committee that selects who the next person in the presidential line will be, who will be the members at large for the board of directors and some other positions depending on the year. So I think it's important for people to understand that the position of incoming president, treasurer, who is a three-year term, so it's not every year you vote for the treasurer or secretary or the at-large members, it's not a widespread vote to the membership. Essentially, the membership votes on who the nominating committee is going to be. So you can submit, anybody can submit names starting at the business meeting and the annual meeting. You could submit names for who you want to be on the nomination committee. We have some rules in the bylaws of who can be on the nomination committee. For example, you can't be on the board of directors and be on the nominations committee. You can't have multiple people from the same institution on the nominations committee. And that's because we don't want it to be stacked. You know, you don't want the deck stacked in, in a certain way. 
um, you want it to be kind of a, a widespread representation of, of the membership. But the membership essentially nominates the people for the nomination committee. And then the nomination committee comes up with their slate of people who they are going to propose for the next round of elected positions. And then the membership votes on that slate before the annual meeting starts. So it's like this extra step, which I think can be very confusing for people, is that, again, the membership doesn't vote directly on who they want to be president. They vote for or they nominate who's going to be on the nomination committee. The nomination committee comes up with a slate because they work through the year. That's their job as a committee. They come up with a slate. And then that slate gets presented to the membership and the membership votes on that slate. Hopefully that, that is. I love it. That's exactly what I was hoping for. Um, I think it, it sheds so much light. I think it also, um, you know, highlights the fact that, uh, you know, the, the list of, uh, of, uh, members who are going to be on the nominating committee just came out, how important that vote is to give, you know, to give our, ourselves our, our, the voice, as we look towards uh, selecting the board and the, and the presidential line and, and uh, treasurer and secretary and whatnot. So um, I, I, it's, it's really important. You know, we tend to get a lot of emails from all of our organizations, but when those come out, that's really critical for people to do. Yeah. And I think the other thing to note here is that there is a separation. So the nomination committee, they inform the board, but the board doesn't choose the slate. Right. The president. So uh, the key here is it's not like the president who's saying, I want my buddy to be the next president. Like it's a separate committee that informs the board uh, of directors on what the slate is going to be. But the board doesn't adjust that slate. It goes to the membership. So it's not the board doesn't select who the next you know in line is going to be. And I think that's a common misconception. Yeah. So I want to talk about two other positions, uh, actually, both that you and I have, have had the fortune of being uh, involved with. So one is annual meeting chair and the other is IPOS um, about how IPOS is run and how people are selected, because I think that there's uh, still a little bit of, uh, of confusion as to how those things come about. Yeah. So, um, you know, the way the annual meeting chair is, or program chair, as we call it, is uh, selected is when the um, president, the president, the next president gets selected, meaning the nomination committee comes up with their vice president for the following year, who will be president two years later, and that slate gets approved by the membership, that incoming vice president It's their responsibility, his or her responsibility, to choose who they want the program chair to be for their year of presidency. So it's two years ahead. Okay, so the incoming president, um, uh, you know, Kevin Shea, who just came in, you know, will select uh, who is going to be his program chair uh, for that year. It also used to be in the past they would also select their pre-course chair. And there's some specialty day chair at the AOS. Now, those last two things have kind of have, have gone away. So now it's primarily just the program chair that they select. So it is a handpicked position by the president. And the reason for that is, is, is I think, self-explanatory. It's their presidential year, and they want somebody that is going to run a meeting that's going to that's gonna be uh, reflective of, of their vision. And so it's a handpicked position um, based on that. So... What then that creates is it creates the program committee, and the program committee is whoever that current program chair is, then the incoming program chair, which was selected by the president after that, and then the program chair two years before that. So you have 
you have three people and then you also have the, uh, the past program chair. So there's four people that kind of make up the program committee. And so the annual meeting is run by the program chair and it's, it really is heavily run by one person. The program committee really works to help select abstracts, which we can talk about, which I think would probably be of some interest to the, uh, to the listeners. But the bottom line is that that program chair is really responsible for everything and, 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 and really works very closely with the, the meetings coordinators uh, at the society, which is uh, predominantly Tara Long, who does an amazing job uh, with this. And so um, you work uh, with her mostly on the academic side. Obviously, you're not necessarily picking menus and things like that. That's what the society handles, but all the academic side and the decisions and, and what kind of concurrent sessions you're going to run and so on is, is done by the program chair. Yeah, you make a great point. And, and, um, uh, and I, I want to talk about IPOS, but, but uh, touch a little bit further on the abstract selection process. You and I have had a number of discussions about this, and obviously we went through it, about how that occurs and you know, how, ways that we have uh, constructed it to try to keep it as, as fair and just as possible. Yeah, so I will say that this is a very fair system. It is extremely fair. It's blinded, um, and it's, uh, I think, a very strong system in terms of uh, not playing favorites and so on. So essentially what happens, you know, it depends year to year on, you know, how many people are, are, are attending and, you know, and so on. But somewhere around 1,000 abstracts, you know, somewhere between 800 to 1,100, something like that. But somewhere around 1,000 abstracts get submitted every year, which is a lot if you think about it. Okay. And the number of abstracts or podium or poster presentations does vary year to year, but we're talking somewhere around 140 to 160 usually. And so it, it does vary year to year, depending on, uh, you know, are you having pre-course or you're not, are you doing a number of concurrent sessions? And that's where the program chair has a little bit of leeway. Some of it depends a little bit on the physical space of the, of where the meeting is, but you get a sense of what the acceptance rate is, right? It's, 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 it's low. Um, and it's not because there's not a lot of good work done. It's just because there's a lot of abstracts that are being submitted. So every abstract gets read by eight people. And that includes the program chair. So the program chair reads every single abstract as, uh, as you and I did during our years, which it re- requires, as you recall, taking some extra days off from work to be able to get through the abstracts. But um, it's the uh, you know, program chair reads it, another member of the program committee, so the either outgoing chair or one of the other um, chairs to be will read kind of a third of the abstracts. And then um, there'll be some just, you know, uh, voluntary readers, as you as, as the membership knows, um, we get uh, solicitations for people to, um, to just be abstract reviewers. And so you pick your area of interest and you'll get assigned to some abstracts to review. And then there's some subspecialty. So the people that run subspecialty day under their areas, so for example, the hip experts or the spine experts, they'll be assigned the hip papers or the spine papers. So the bottom line is that eight people, including at least two members of the program committee, will read every abstract. The top score gets thrown out, the lowest score gets thrown out, and the rest get averaged. And that numeric score forms the basis of the ranking. And I will tell you, and I know you know this from year year two, it really is the core of how the decision is made. I mean, there are some slight adjustments because we try to make things uh, entertaining uh, and as um, promoting of discussion as possible. So I'll say for myself, if something's like, for example, a reliability study, that's not a super interesting in terms of a podium type uh, presentation. And so that might, I might drop that down a little bit, but 98% of it comes out based on how the numbers are. So it's blinded. Uh, the reviews get done by eight people. Two scores get thrown out. You get average, and then you get ranked. And the top scores get in, and the lower scores do not. 
Again, there's a, all this is blinded right at the end. The program committee or even just the program chair will unblind things just to make sure that you don't have like four papers from, you know, Atlanta Scottish Rite, uh, you know, in the same set because people just want to see some diversity. Um, but you can see here, it really is based on the quality of the abstract. So it's blinded. So, you know, sometimes this means that it's a, you know, there's a lot of institutions reflected. Sometimes it means there's a fewer number of institutions uh, reflected in the program. It's just, it's based on what gets submitted and what the score is. So it's a, it's a very merit-based system um, and it's very blinded. Yeah, I agree. I, I thought it was, it was excellent. It's a incredibly well-organized and well-orchestrated process that's been, you know, done and passed down through the ranks. Um, I, I thought it was incredibly fair. So I want to, uh, and, and uh, you've been incredibly kind to, to share all this, but, uh, but the, it seems as though the, the one last missing piece that, that gets, uh, that comes up a lot is IPOS. And it's such a, you know, crown jewel of our society. Um, you know, I remember when I was asked to, to uh, participate as faculty, and, and I'm sure you do as well, um, that it's, it's such a special meeting. Um, can you talk a little bit about the structure of the IPOS uh, committee and how the uh, how it's run and and how people are selected to participate as faculty and, and that kind of thing? Yeah, so IPOS has changed a little bit. I think to understand IPOS a little bit, you have to understand a little bit of where it came from. And so, you know, it was originally the Tajian uh, course, uh, which kind of fell by the wayside for a number of years, and then it was kind of rekindled by Chad Price. And um, when he brought this uh, course to fruition and really kind of convinced Pazna when they were still co-branded with the AOS to do this, it really, the idea was to have kind of key opinion leaders, thought leaders in the room who are um, interested and committed to education and make this a very dynamic, interactive meeting. And I, and I think it's important because, again, the background was really that key opinion leader uh, uh, um, kind of notion. And so I know when I was a young faculty uh, member at CHOP and not on the IPOS faculty at all, you know, it was just the understood thing was, you know, you got to publish a lot. Like you got to be the person publishing in a certain space. And if you really publish a lot and you're the person kind of, you know, creating um, consensus out there, then somebody might give you a call and say, hey, listen, we'd love you to be IPOS faculty and talk about what you basically have been doing. Um, now, it's changed over the years. It's become, you know, a, 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 a kind of a wider, uh, more open audience. I would say it's evolved very much into um, you know, having a lot of residents and fellows, although I think a little bit of that is a service. I think there's a lot that can be offered to uh, mid-career folks, and I know that Sukin uh, and Derek Kelly, who are running it this year, have really uh, done a great job in the last couple of years of really improving the content uh, for people that are in kind of mid-career. But that's a sense of where it was and, and kind of how it evolved. So I think that, you know, faculty um, originally were selected kind of based on that, essentially like a track record of research and also having the ability to speak well and speak succinctly and, and be good educators. So that was that was the criteria. Um, and then, you know, as the years have gone on, you know, the priorities have slightly changed. And I think that it, that's reflective of the evolution of the society. So I think we've understood much better in recent years, the importance of um, diversity in the faculty and, and being reflective of the membership. And I think that's really been very intentional um, from the uh, folks that are running IPOS, which I'll, I can talk about in a second. But, you know, the faculty uh, is quite large. So I think this year it's somewhere around 70 faculty members. Um, 
There's uh, over a third that are women, uh, which is great. It's actually a slightly higher percentage than the, the percentage of women in our um, general membership. Um, I think that with costs rising, it's a little bit harder to do um, the number of international um, faculty that we've done or that have been done in the past, just because it's become more and more expensive to run the meeting uh, with inflation, et cetera. And, and some of those international travelers, it's just it's more expensive to bring them in. So I think that's a little bit less than previously done. But there's also over the last few years instituted an instructor kind of level of uh, faculty to try to bring in younger people uh, as faculty to IPOS and make it, um, you know, more uh more dynamic in terms of, uh, of turning the faculty. But I think ultimately, you know, the, the, the reason why faculty members get selected is exactly that. So it's a track record in research. It's being an expert in your field. Uh, it's being somebody who can speak well at the podium and is committed to education uh, and involving uh, and being interactive with the, with the participants. In terms of the leadership, um, I think that's also changed uh, over the years. I think, you know, Chad Price just did it for a while. And then when he didn't want to do it anymore, he asked Jack Flynn to do it, who did it for a while. And then uh, and then he ended off to Michael Vitale. And then after that, it started becoming a little bit of shorter stints than these people who had done, you know, five to 10 years in the role. Um, but I think more recently, it's been uh, formalized that the kind of new IPOS director is kind of chosen from um, a group that includes past directors of IPOS as well as some some um, input from the presidential line, and it's a really important job. Um, it's it's a job that requires an incredible amount of work. Anybody that's been to IPOS at either level, a faculty or participant, understands the number of moving parts in that meeting and and how much of an organizational. Uh, lift it is to do that, despite the incredible support from the PASA staff. And so it's a real big job. And it's, it's you know, very uncommon that somebody who does it, who's also got another role at PASA. It's almost like that's your that's your job for PASA because it's such a big lift. That is, uh, that's perfect. It is. And I, I mean, I think that that people who go, uh, especially, you know, it's, it's always the first timers who see it and are just blown away at the at the coordination and the innovation. Um, and and the camaraderie and and the ability to network it's just it's it's truly one of a kind it's why it's you know i think the academy thinks of it as sort of the the best meeting out there um but it it's it's from the leaders and and down to the faculty so um it it's uh, that was a great summary uh and i'm <laughs> really appreciative yeah you're like an encyclopedia when it comes to that <laughs> well it's been fun i uh, i appreciate the time you're you're right the time does fly <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, listen, Woody, I uh, I couldn't uh, be more appreciative of you, and and uh, I think this was great, and I really enjoyed getting to to hear a little bit more about your story. And thanks for sort of updating the members on on pause and structure. Um, as always, I look forward to our next time together. Absolutely, Nick. Thanks for uh, having me on, and uh, hopefully, this has been helpful to uh, those that have been listening. For sure. Have a great one. Take it easy, man.